Let's read the scriptures together. Our Old Testament this morning will be from the Psalms. I'll be reading Psalm number 24. Please hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And from the New Testament, the book of James, which will be our sermon text this morning, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 11. The sermon text will be chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law and are not a doer of the law but a judge, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray together. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, thank you for your glory. Thank you that you have not hidden your beauty away, not to be seen, but have manifested it over all that you have made. Thank you that your glory, your authority, your dominion, and your power or over all things, there is no language today, no people, no culture, no place that is not under your dominion even now. And we willingly, gladly, and intentionally surrender ourselves to you. And yet, Lord, we also pray to you and ask, Lord, would you have mercy upon us? 
Would you hear our cries as we cry out to you as the living God, the maker of all things, the one who sustains life, the one who gives us life each and every day. Lord, would you please give us your help? Thank you for the mercy that you have shown in our community these last few days. Thank you for the health that we experience here. We pray for those that do go to work each and every day. Thank you for their uh, ability to do so. Thank you for the jobs that they have and their willingness to do so. And Lord, we pray that you would keep them safe, not only in body, but in mind and soul. Give them peace, I pray. Pray for those that are teaching in the different circumstances that we live in right now, and for the homes of all of our children that are learning at home, and for the parents that have reorientated their homes and their lives uh, to teach their children. Lord, we pray that you would give peace in these homes, patience and kindness one towards another. And we character our own lives in the midst of difficult circumstances that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in our lives, that you would make us each one to be patient, that you would make us each one to be kind and loving. Pray now as we hear your word declared to us. I pray that the truth would penetrate into our lives and bear all the fruit that you would have it. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come together today, we are back in the book of James. We took a little bit of a break um, from James as the uh, resurrection weekend was upon us. And so now we're back uh, in the book of James. And uh, we're diving right into a fairly difficult portion of Scripture. And uh, uh, sometimes I think about titles and uh, sometimes I don't. But this uh, week I gave a little bit of a thought to the title because it helps us to understand the text that is before us and what James is writing. And so... I've called the sermon this morning, The Great Illusion. And you might say, well, what's The Great Illusion? Well, it's something that I borrowed from a book by Randy Elkhorn called The Treasure Principle. And in that, he writes this, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that our earth is home. Again, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that the earth is our home. This is what is behind, I believe, the strong words of James in this particular chapter. James is concerned that some are beginning to live under the illusion that this world is all that there is, or that this world is all that matters. They have lost sight of the world to come and of heaven and the new earth that is awaiting us. And you can see the warnings that James issues in these few short verses. In verse 1, he says to a certain group of people, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. In verse 3, he says, you have laid up treasures for yourself in the last days. In verse 5, he says, you have lived on earth and you've fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. I think as we sit back and we wrestle with this text, what James is about here is he's talking about worldliness. He already introduced that a little bit earlier in chapter 4, which Pastor Barry read. But the issue is, again, worldliness, or it's the abuse of wealth, or the misuse of wealth. And it's something that James has put out in the open already. And now, as he comes to deliver this severe word, we feel the sting. And it's been one of those messages this week where I said to my wife, it's an orange bridge message, in the sense that I felt such a deep conviction in my own life that I thought I'd rather turn around and go home and let somebody else deliver this message than me to have to do it. 
But as I'm thinking it through, I'm thankful for the work of the Spirit of God that comes into our hearts and convicts us and to works with us and molds and shapes us. And so as we come to this passage, we ask ourselves, well, who is James addressing? We think to ourselves, can he possibly be talking to Christians? There are those who say no. In fact, one preacher that I uh, follow and find helpful from time to time, I went to his website and I noticed that he completely skipped over these six verses because he felt that they uh, didn't apply to the church. And then he went to verse 7 and he talked about then how the Christian ought to respond to the rich that are oppressing them. But I find it entirely possible that James is speaking to those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. After all, I'm sure he probably knew some of the people that he was writing to who were part of the church in Jerusalem before it was scattered into so many different parts around the known world back then. And maybe he had heard reports about the way that their focus had shifted and the way that their living had shifted and the way he had slipped back from a heavenly focus into a worldly focus. You go through the book of James and you find in James chapter 1 verses 1 to 9 that James there addresses the rich and the poor and he says there to the rich that they ought not to boast in their riches and then of course you come to that passage in James chapter 2 where James is talking about uh, a, a hypothetical situation which probably is based on a real situation that has happened more than once about how a rich person and a poor person come into the congregation or gathering and there's favoritism shown to the rich man and the poor man is mistreated and at the end of it James is almost incredulous as he thinks about this because he says is it not the rich who oppress you and they're the ones that drag you into court are they not the ones who blaspheme the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and so James has already been working his way through uh, careful admonitions to all kinds of people And in fact, you would find in James a similarity to Old Testament prophets, the prophet Amos, the prophet Micah, the prophet Jeremiah, who also spoke very strongly concerning the wealthy and their abuse of the wealth. I think sometimes when we come to a text like James, it's all too easy for us to idealize the New Testament church, to kind of look at it through rose-colored glasses, so to speak. But I'm not sure that's how the New Testament even does it. You go to the book of Corinthians, for example, or the book of Galatians, and you will find that there are churches dealing with real significant problems as they're walking towards heaven. I think of the churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation, the seven churches that are listed there, representative churches of the church age, and how many of them are facing very difficult problems amongst them. In fact, the church to Laodicea, Jesus says to them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I sometimes think of our own hearts, my own heart, in which one has said it's an encyclopedia of sins that can be found there. We may be children of God, but the battle for our own sanctification continues to rage. Who of us doesn't daily feel the depth of their sin? Who doesn't feel the weight of temptation? Who of us is free from the temptations of the world and the allurements of the world and particularly of wealth? And so again, as I come to this passage, I don't have any need to be dogmatic. But nor do I simply assume that James 
has to be addressing those outside the church. Because I've felt the weight of what he has been saying in my own heart and life. And I was thinking of this. Um, one person has pointed out that uh, when you um, accumulate the teachings of Jesus, a full 15% of them have to do with wealth. More than what Jesus has to say about heaven and hell combined. And so it certainly is a topic that we need to be thinking about. So who are the rich? When James in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 says, Come now, you rich. Who are the rich? Well, I think they are clearly in this particular passage those who are able to employ others or hire others to do work for them. Certainly they are those who have more than they need. They have disposable wealth. There is a world of danger and deception that comes to us through wealth. And James, the ever-loving pastor, as we have pointed out, wants to expose some of its abuses and some of its deceptions and some of its shortcomings so that we might reorient our life from a focus here on earth to a focus in heaven above. You might have noticed as we read through this passage that it's like James is a lawyer. He's setting up a courtroom scene, so to speak, as he carefully lays out the situation that he wants to address amongst the people of God. It begins with an invitation to reason in the very first verse, the first part of it. Come now, you rich. It's the same tone that we already found back in chapter 4, verse 13. It's kind of a note of incredulousness. It's kind of like, give your heads a shake. It's kind of like, really now? Is, is this how you think it's appropriate to live? It's the same kind of tone, I think, that's designed um, God's words through Isaiah to the people of Israel, where he says, come now, let us reason together. And so there's this invitation to put on our thinking caps and to examine our lives and to wrestle through that in light of Scripture. And then there's a warning and I think the warning, though, also has an implied invitation to repentance as well. He says, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming on you. This is really no soft talk. These are matters of internal consequence. There's a day of accounting coming, James is saying. And here we see the grand illusion once again being referenced. That those who live as though there is no accounting coming. Those who live as though this world is all there is. A few weeks ago we talked about the practical atheist. It's the person who may say they believe in God or affirm even the existence of God. But their entire life is lived in such a way that it betrays that belief or that affirmation. I think it's an invitation to repentance because again, back in verse 9 of chapter 4, as James is talking to the church on a different matter, he says to them then in verse 9, he says there, um, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves to, before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's another invitation to the people of God to be drawn towards him in repentance. And then there's the accusation. The accusation, I, I think, is summarized at the end of verse 3 in chapter 5. He says there, you have laid up treasure in the last days. 
I can't help but think that these kind of words have a a specific application or sting even in the times in which we live now. And the way our world economy has been shaken, the way our own financial positions have been shaken. This is, I think, the heart of what he's saying. James is not condemning anybody who is rich. But rather, what we will find is that what James is condemning is those who are hoarding. Those who are misusing their wealth. Probably 25 years ago or so, I read an article in the um, Globe and Mail. It was away at a convention. And it was a newspaper that was slipped under the hotel room door. And as I was working through it, it was an editorial. And the title of the article was, When Too Much Isn't Enough. And it's been 25 years and probably a month doesn't go by when I don't reflect on the title of that article. And the obsession that we have with stuff and how we're never content with what we have. But listen to what James says here. He carefully lays up what it means to store up treasure for ourselves in this last days. He says, your riches have rotted. You've got too much of them. You, you can't even keep track of them. You've, you've stacked them up. You've stored them away and they've rotted. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. You've got too many clothes. You don't even know what you've got. You've got clothes that you put over here. You've got clothes that you put over there. You've got clothes in storage. You've got so many clothes that the moths are feeding off of them. And he says, your gold and your silver have corroded, which is fascinating because metal doesn't corrode. Again, it's not the riches per se, but it's the wasteful accumulation of them. And he says, it's that Wasteful accumulation that will witness against us. See, this is the courtroom scene as he's presenting evidence. In the strongest possible way, James is condemning hoarding. And it's hoarding that is related to a certain view of life. He says, what's the point of feeding moths? What's the point of, of, of stuff falling into disrepair? What's the point of having so much if it simply corrodes? You see, the point of this accusation, I think, that James is, 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 is making, this pastoral concern that he has, is to open our eyes to earthly things. You see, so often our eyes can be set on the resources that we've amassed. And we fail to see not only the corrosive reality of those things that we've amassed, but the effect that they have on our own soul. He says they, they bear witness against you and on you. And so he says you've laid up these things for yourselves in the last days. And what does that mean again? Well, in a nutshell, I think what he's saying is like amassing riches like this is kind of like arranging the chairs on the Titanic. He says, this world is coming to an end. The last days are here. That wealth will be meaningless. And certainly if you die, that wealth will be meaningless. And you amass it only to see it all destroyed at the end of the last days. And that's the focus that James gives us here. The last days. We've spoken about this so often here as we've gathered together. The last days are, are, are not to be understood as some might say that the last days are at the end of what some might call uh, the, the, the world. 
No, the last days are a period of time. It's an age that's described in the New Testament. The last days are the days between certainly the first coming of Christ, his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and then his second coming. Everything in between that is called the last days. And we know that those last days will come to an end when Jesus comes back, but we know that they're finite. We know that they constitute a specific, definite period of time which will end. And in fact, the whole of the New Testament reminds us how the last days are simply a prelude to eternity. And James is saying, why are you amassing all this treasure for a period of time that will cease? He says it's short-sighted. He says the world, this present world, is not all that there is. He says at the end of this last days, we will be ushered into eternity. There's a connection between how we live in these last days and the world to come. And all this treasure that we amass on this earth, we can't take it with us. When we die, it will go to somebody else. It will have no benefit to us, no value to us. And the scriptures would say it's foolish to amass things in the last days. Rather, what the Bible says again and again is that when we have the world's goods, when God blesses us with the world's goods, we should hold them lightly. We should be generous with them. We should use them to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And this is, in fact, what Jesus says, and I can't help but wonder if James has this in his head as he's writing this letter to this group of people or these people that are scattered everywhere. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, we have Jesus addressing what James is talking about. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's pretty strong language. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Clothes, stuff in warehouses, gold and silver, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And you say, well, how do I do that? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. There's a security that's behind our treasures in heaven that is not behind our treasures on earth. I've spoken to people who lost thousands of dollars because the stock market fell in these last few weeks. There's no security. and That will never happen to treasure that we lay up in heaven. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. There's three pairs that Jesus talks about in here. The first pair is simply two treasures. There's two treasures. 
we can sum it all down, everything in this world, everything in eternity, we can pull into two treasures or treasuries which reflect two ways of living. One is characterized by accumulation. We lay up treasures for ourselves on the earth. We accumulate things for ourselves on the earth. And the other is characterized by accumulating valuable things in heaven. By putting a treasure in heaven for the age to come. There's two options, but there's only one choice. And the difference between these two investment plans is summed up in two words. The first investment plan is summed up by the word accumulation. The second investment plan is summed up by the word giving. Two opposite kind of realities or ways of living. Is our investment plan concerned with the accumulation of worldly wealth or the accumulation of heavenly wealth? I know we have to differentiate between prudent saving and sinful hoarding. Yet as one put, it, it's not wrong to invest in material wealth. It's simply a poor investment. They don't stand the test of time. As I've already indicated, eternal investments are subject to decay. They're subject to all kinds of threat, theft, and market shifts, and natural disaster, and premature death. There's no earthly treasure at all that is safe. And ultimately, Peter tells us that everything in this world, at the end of this age, will be consumed by fire. On the other hand, treasure deposited in heaven will last for eternity. Jesus is not saying, nor is James, that it's wrong to invest. What they're saying is just invest wisely. You can on your own go and read 1 Timothy chapter 6. I just want to pull out um, verse 19 where Paul is encouraging Timothy to teach those who are rich, those who have excess, those who have more than they need. He wants to teach them to be generous with what they have. He says he wants them to, he wants to get Timothy to encourage generosity, through which, he says, they would be storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, storing up treasure for themselves in heaven, laying a good foundation for their eternal future. And Jesus said, in another place, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I was reminded of this this week as I was thinking of the words of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary who um, was murdered by those that he was taking the gospel to. But before that happened, obviously, he said these words about his goal in life. And he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a summary of what Jesus is saying. That's a summary of what James is saying. Certainly, James Eliot was concerned about personal gain. He was concerned about treasure. But it was a heavenly treasure, not an earthly treasure that consumed him. Another person wrote, and I find, I've, I've, I've recounted this one to myself many times. He says, you can't take anything with you when you die, but you can send it on ahead. 
And again, that's what Jesus is saying about laying up treasure for ourselves in heaven. That's what James is saying when he's, he's pastorally urging them with this severe word to not accumulate wealth here on earth. And it was Jesus who said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's actually a very penetrating phrase that Jesus says there. Because what he's saying is, what you do with your money will determine the state of your heart. What you do with your money will determine what captures your heart. It will determine where your heart goes. If you want your heart to be in one place and not another, put your money there. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want a heart for missions, sometimes people say, I just wish I had a heart for missions. Then give money to missions. If you want to have a heart for the poor and the needy, then give your heart or your money to the poor and needy. Find ways to support them and organizations or missions to them, and you will find your heart following your money. If you want to have a heart for the church, you give your money to the church. Your heart will always follow the money. And so Jesus says there are two treasures. We can lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. We can accumulate worldly wealth. Or we can lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven through generosity. He talks about two perspectives, which we won't go into in verses 22 and 23. Simply the perspective of earth or the perspective of heaven. And then Jesus talks about two masters. You, there, there's something about God and money. You can't serve both, though, he says. It's a, it's a question of mastery. There, there's a, a pull to be mastered by one or the other. There's something about God and money that exert an influence on our life. You can be mastered by one or the other, but you can't serve them both. It's an either-or proposition. And so James, I think, is continuing to remind us, what does it look like to draw near to God? What does it look like to submit to God? What does it look like to humble ourselves before God? It means that we trust God with our wealth. We trust God with our resources. We trust God and steward the things God has given us, not to accumulate treasures on earth, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. One person wrote every day, the person whose treasure is on earth is headed away from that treasure, where every day the person whose treasure is in heaven is headed towards that treasure. Where is your treasure? Are you headed away from it? Or are you headed towards it? And then James lays out his case. In verses 4 to 6, difficult words for us to hear. He begins with this word, behold. We've talked about this as a people of God here many times. It's not a, a common word in English language today. We might instead say, stop, look at that. Or look over there, see that? Or stop and think about that for a minute. And James wants to get their attention. He wants to slow them down just a little bit. And the case that he makes is he wants to highlight, this is how you've made your money. 
and this is how you've spent it. And while they have withheld wages that are due, they've used those withheld wages to live in luxury and self-indulgence. God cares for the poor and the oppressed. You find that everywhere through the Bible. God has a heart for the poor and the oppressed. James could be referring to a number of passages. One is certainly um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 to 13, where Moses, writing to the people there, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely or profane the name of your God. For I am the Lord your God. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Or Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with me? I, I don't have a farm and I don't have a vineyard. Well, I think the principle here is, 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 is how are we to be Christ-centered in our business dealings? How do we treat those that we employ or those that we hire to do work for us around our homes or around our properties? You see, what he's talking about here is wealth gained fraudulently. Fraud is the intentional perversion of truth in order to induce another to part with something of value or surrender a legal right. It's an act of deceiving or misrepresenting. And so all James uses it of an agrarian society. The practice is widespread throughout human history. Do we pay our bills on time? Do we report all of our income to the CRA, which is a strange time of the year we're in now? Do we make excuses about why we can't pay somebody that has done work for us or somebody that is working for us? See, what he's talking about is unpaid wages for real work done. And notice what he says is those unpaid wages are the evidence against us. He says the wages earned are, are crying out, they're testifying, they're evidence of our fraud. And you might recall back in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain had killed Abel, and Cain's response to God's concern about where Abel was, he says, I, am I my brother's keeper? To which God replied, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. He sees it all. And coupled with the cries of the unweighed, unpaid wages are the cries of the harvesters who reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's an amazing um, title or name for God, the Lord of hosts. 
It's how he's described frequently in the Old Testament. Only twice is that title used of him in the New Testament, but it's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. He is the creator and the commander of all the armies of the earth, of invisible spiritual armies and of human armies. He commands every single one of them. In fact, in Isaiah, it says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. He's the one that comes to battle for the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs 14.31 says, The one who oppresses the poor person insults his maker. But the one who is kind to the needy honors him. We honor God. We honor our maker through generosity and kindness. So how Christ-centered are our business dealings? We certainly have to acknowledge a profit motive. You can't operate a business consistently at a loss. We can't consistently live in credit or in the negative. But some of the best employers that I have ever worked for in my life have been governed more by the blessing motive than by a profit motive. Their concern has always been, how can I share the profits of my business with my workers? How can I bless those who work for me? Not just pay them the bare amount, but how can I bless them with the wages that I have? Or those that work around our house, they might give you a price, but do you just pay them the price or do you bless them with more? And so they have gained their wages fraudulently by withholding what is justly due another. And how have they spent that money? He says, well, they've spent it indulgently. A life characterized by indulgement, by by luxury and self-indulgence. It's not simply a weekend thing. He's, He's talking about a lifestyle. And Jesus talks about a man like this in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. He described the rich man there as clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. I don't know, you need to work this out on your own. I, I've spent a little bit of time and um, just looked up the word luxury in a number of dictionaries and found, was fascinated by the way that luxury is described, a, condi- a condition of abundance or great ease and comfort, sumptuous environment lived in luxury, something added to pleasure of comfort but not absolutely necessary, that's luxury. Do, do I live in a way that is not absolutely necessary, then the dictionary would say I live in luxury. What about self-indulgence? Excessive or unrestrained gratification of one's own appetites, desires, and whims. The act of allowing yourself to have or do anything that you enjoy, especially without restraint. It's fascinating that, that this is what James characterized. It's living as though this world is all that there is. And then he adds a a further accusation. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. I wrestled around with that a little bit. The verb implies a kind of lifestyle. It implies a perspective. It implies ignorance, really. I was thinking about the piglet in Charlotte's Web um, as as I was trying to wrestle around with understanding what it means to fatten the heart. Wilbur. 
And not knowing the end of the matter, every time the farmer brought him slop, he just ate. And he, he kept eating and eating and eating. He kept eating the slop. And he get, kept getting fatter and fatter. He, he just wants to eat as much as he can all the time. And certainly he eats more than he needs. And he becomes a, a glutton of his own destruction, so to speak. Because little did he realize that by, by just eating all the time, he was actually fattening himself up for his own slaughter, a day of judgment. It's really a picture of, of this luxurious, self-indulgent living with no realization that there is an accounting to life. This is why perspective matters. This is why choosing the right investments matters. This is why a life characterized by self-control and generosity matters. I am so convinced in so many ways that right now God has given our world an opportunity to press the reset button on so many things in our life to sit back and have time to evaluate things that we never stopped to think about before. And how timely it is that we're in this particular passage in James at this particular time in our world to think about what are we doing? Where are we investing? What are those investments doing? How secure are they? And James then says, you have condemned and murdered. The end is not there. It really just runs on to the next saying, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous one. Well, they might say, well, how have I done that? Well, you've done it through the court. Well, I didn't do it. It was the law that did it. But they still used the court to justify their ends. I think you may be thinking about judicial murder. The rich have uh, it seems an ability to use the courts to their advantage so often to destroy the lives of others. Could be murder by association. That in extreme circumstances when we defraud or deprive somebody of the right to earn a living, that that may lead to starvation and eventually to their death. Could be the trauma being so strong when we withhold a paycheck or we take away a job where somebody's only recourse in their own mind is to take their own life. There's so many ways in which this could be applied, but James is simply saying the outcome of fraudulent behavior, of massing wealth to our own good and to other else, somebody else's harm is to condemn them. I was thinking of the, as I came to the end of this in my own heart and my own thoughts, and I was thinking of the parable of the two sons that Jesus tells about a father is two sons, and one leaves and goes away and spends all his money and comes back and is welcomed with open arms by the father to, into forgiveness and restoration of his position in the home. And the other son, though, all we find out is the other son is angry, he's bitter. He has an invitation of the father to come home, but we don't know what he does. And so here we're left with this question, so what did the rich do? How did the rich respond? Did they respond with, with wailing and, and repenting, as James calls them to, with howling? You see, it's fascinating to me that there's no jury in this story, and I wonder if the jury is our own heart, if it's our own conscience. If it's, here's the case that's laid out, and, and now James just leaves it with each one in his congregation. 
each one that's reading the letter, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. It's not a matter of judging. It's just a matter of us before God. What matters to us? I think one of the things that we're left with is we need to set our minds on Jesus. That Jesus ought to be our treasure. I was thinking of this in light of the book of Philippians and again working through Paul's own view of stuff that he had and stuff that he accumulated. And in talking about it, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I think about that in my own life. Is Christ Jesus the one priority in my life? The one thing that more than anything else I want to know, I want to understand, I want to please, I want to serve. Jesus needs to be our treasure. And the final thing that I've been wrestling with personally, and I'll leave it with you, because I think this is where James leads us, is how do we cultivate generosity in our lives? It's so hard, isn't it, to to live with eternity in mind, to not be swallowed up by the great illusion that this world is all there is. And it's, it's difficult for us to go from accumulation to generosity. And yet isn't that what our Heavenly Father is like? For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only Son. He didn't withhold him. He didn't hold him back. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to go that far. He, he gave his one and only son. And in another place of Jesus, we read that, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. We have been the recipients of the lavish generosity of God that has set us in standing for the world to come, how might we also then become more like our Heavenly Father and cultivate a heart and a mindset of generosity? So this is a great opportunity to re-examine our view of wealth. Are we hoarding it or are we using it? To re-examine our debts to anybody that we might Oh, are we holding back? Are we not paying? Or are we paying our bills quickly to re-examine our attitudes? Do we want to be characterized by stinginess and miserliness? Or do we want to be characterized by generosity? Oh, may God help us to listen to the Spirit of God as he takes these verses and drills them down into our own hearts individually. Father, we come before you today. Thank you for a passage such as this. It's not the easiest of passages. I'm sure for James, as he wrote it, there was pain in his heart. There was deep hurt, but there was also concern for the people that he was writing to. That they might not be swallowed up in the allurements and the deception of riches. And I pray that for us as individuals, and I pray that for us as a church, particularly in the days that we live. That, Father, when we have an opportunity to be generous, that we would be generous. That we would realize that treasures on earth are so transitory, but treasures in heaven last for eternity. 
Oh, Father, help us cultivate generous hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.